Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 105th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is why employee experience and why now? Excuse me. I'm joined by Belinda Ganaway, who, along with Emma Bridger, is the author of Employee Experience by Design, How to Create an Effective EX for Competitive Advantage. The publisher is Kogan Page. Belinda is the director at the employee experience consultancy, Fathom XP. Her fascination with organizational culture began when she was a journalist working in the UK Houses of Parliament. Welcome to the show, Belinda. Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. So you like to go by D, so we're going to, or B rather, we're going to use that going forward. Uh, Can you give us a brief overview of the book, please? Absolutely. So it's a practical guide to understanding and designing a better employee experience. Um, We wrote it for a couple of reasons, um, really to demystify employee experience and to answer the question, what do we do about it? There are several books out there that talk about what it is, but actually we wanted to offer something really practical that any organisation in any sector could really use to get started with, as I say, understanding and designing a better experience for all employees. And we wanted to dispel some myths. And I think that sort of idea for all organisations was really important to us as well. We'd like to think about it as almost democratising employee experience. I think there was a danger that some of the literature out there that it seemed like employee experience was something you should think about for people sitting in nice city offices or nice home-based offices as well, but sort of knowledge-based workers. 
But actually, we fundamentally believe that everybody design uh, deserves to have a, a good, if not a great experience at work. So that's why we wrote it. Well, I absolutely love what you just said because, you know, as we're sitting here watching the Ukraine conflict unfold and, and the battle for democracy, the idea of extending democracy in full force into the workplace and across all ranks is really appealing to me, I must say. There's a couple of things in, in your introduction that, that intrigued me. One was uh, certain myths that need to be dispelled. I'd love to hear what those are in a second. And then in the uh, title for today's episode, it's Why Now? So I'm wondering if you can hit both of those. What are those myths and, and why now? Absolutely. Thank you. So I think there are a few myths around employer experience. So, I mean, for us, employer experience is the, it's simply the experience that somebody has of you from the moment they start thinking about you as a potential employer to the moment they leave. And actually way beyond, because obviously experience exists as a memory long after you've potentially left an organisation. So that's what we mean by employee experience. Um, but even defining employee experience can be a little bit tricky and it can take you all over the place. But that, that's why we like a really simple definition. In fact, one of our clients who works in um, public services here, they say employee experiences is all about creating more good days at work. So that's, that's even simpler. So that's kind of like the organizational focus of what you do about employee experience, if you like. So it's tricky because it's both the experience people have, but also what organizations do about it. And I think that's part of the reason it becomes complicated and a little bit elusive. And I think that leads to some of these myths where it becomes hard to dispel some of these myths. So I think there are probably five myths. The first one, actually, a great employee experience is all about perks. And this often gets reduced down to people talking about employee experience. Actually, one um, organization I worked with last year, the MD there said, yeah, I'm just not into employee experience and all that fluffy stuff, cupcakes and table tennis tables. So that really the employee experience is not about perks. It's not about, you know, the free beer Fridays or whatever it is. It genuinely is about the emotional experience somebody has working for you and their journey to work for you and their journey as they cease to work for you as well. So number one, it's not about perks. I think for me, the second myth is this idea that it's all about HR. HR owns it or HR's got this, if you like. What we know is it's so logical as soon as you sit down to think about it is that HR is one bit of the picture, but actually it's about everybody you work with. It's about the culture of the organization. It's about your line manager. It might be about your facilities. Absolutely. It's definitely about internal comms. So it's about so much more than HR. And it's also about the employee, the employee themselves as well, because a lot of, of employee experience is determined by the individual's mindset as well. Um, so it's, to suggest that HR owns the employee experience is just, as I say, ridiculous. It is ridiculous. It's far too ridiculous. <laughs> it also makes it more actionable as well. It's almost a way of outsourcing it to one department, and that's not going to get you anywhere. Um, employee experience is often talked about in the same breath as attraction and retention, i.e., oh, yes, you do that to attract and retain great people. Actually, it's so much more than that. And in the, in the years that I've been working in this area, what's really nice is there's now so much more data out there to back up the anecdotal evidence that we've seen about the impact of employee experience on really important things like reputation, on innovation, productivity, and actually, importantly, financial performance as well. Um, next one is, we covered this already, it is this idea that employee experience is all about folks in flash offices, whether that's a home office or a city office. It's not. We believe it's for everybody. 
Also, I think the biggest one for us, and, and we see this time and time again, is this idea that EX can wait. What we mean by this is it's organizations kind of thinking, yeah, 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 we know we need to do something about that, but we haven't got the time at the moment. If you haven't got the time to make time, if you haven't got the time and space to make you know, for employee experience, you're ignoring the fact that you're already delivering an employee experience, but it probably possibly isn't the one you want to so those are our myths i hope that's not too long an answer for you um oh no i think that's a fabulous answer because it's true i mean you're always going to have an experience whether it's good bad and different ugly as can be but it's it's unfolding and uh, it has tremendous implications for not just the bottom line but whether you're running an organization with a bit of a heart one hopes yes Absolutely. And, and actually, that's nice. That really leads me to think about your second question, the, the why now. So when we, we started working employee experience in the many years before the pandemic, um, and then as we approached that, we used to talk about this, you know, this idea of the psychological contract at work changing, and that what we've known for several years that people want more from work than just a paycheck. They want meaning, they want challenge, they want um, appreciate all, all the stuff that we know about. So this was coined as the phrase that um, cons- um, employees have become the consumers of the workplace. And we've absolutely seen an acceleration of that during the pandemic. As we said, empl- creating a great employee experience is fundamental to innovation and flexibility and creating a, a learning organization. These things are all really linked. As organizations have had to pivot and change and deal with the pandemic and whatever it's thrown at them, these elements have been fundamental. I'm actually um, doing a piece of research at the moment looking at the role and challenge, if you like, of organizational values um, and what that's as a result of the pandemic. And that's really, really pointing it to something that I'm beginning to sense, which was this journey that organizations are on and have been for some years, but it's accelerated because of the pandemic, is to become much more human and much more employee-centric, genuinely putting employee well-being at the center of everything. And that's really being reflected in both the expression of organizational values, but also the energy and focus with which they are being attended to. And these things massively impact employee experience. So I suppose that's a slightly woolly way of saying, I think... The world is demanding more of our organisations, of the organisations within it, and organisations have been responding and creating a good employee experience is fundamental to creating organisations that care about people, that put people's well-being at the, the heart of everything. So there's a lot more that can be done. And of course, th- these things could go backwards as well as forwards. But at the moment, I genuinely feel like we're in a really good place and we're moving into a more into a, into a better place where even more organizations start to properly think about these things. Well, that, that's a wonderful answer. And I could take what you just said in about 14 directions simultaneously, but I'm going to limit myself to a couple. Uh, one, one is the whole business about values. I've been intrigued by a comment that's getting cited a lot here where Napoleon said that an army at war, uh, if it has a moral advantage, a purpose, a meaning to it, has a three to one advantage over just material uh, goods that an army has supply, been supplied with. And it's been used in conjunction with Ukraine versus the Russian forces, which have vastly underperformed uh, because they went into battle under uh, essentially a lie that it was a you know, strategic limited operation and not a war. So when we think about companies, uh, I admit to a little bit of uh, concern, perhaps even cynicism. I, I am hoping that they have a, a value system and it means something. 
But um, to what extent do you think, you know, uh, maybe COVID-19 and what employees are seeking means that companies are indeed stepping up and, and truly have values that are going to be meaningful and enacted versus value systems that unfortunately might end up in a, on a plaque or in a speech or the annual report merely? Yeah, such a great question. I, I love that quote from Napoleon. I think that's that's so valid. Um yeah, we started this research because I do a lot of facilitation. I work with a lot of groups and you know, have at a lot of events. And more and more, I was, and the people I work with are typically HR, internal comms, employee experience, and, and business leaders as well. And I was hearing more and more these people talking about how they were using their organizational values to really guide their their response to the pandemic in terms of how they think about look after care for their people and I was interested to know whether that was just whether that was real whether that could be that those anecdotes could be validated in any way um pre-pandemic absolutely I think the worst thing in the world is when you values exist um as words on posters um and that doesn't and, and they're no way reflected in, in the culture. And that happens happens a lot still. So I wanted to know whether there's a shift away from that and whether values were becoming more embedded, more lived, more truthful, if you like. And the research that we're doing, it is global research, um, suggests that they are. That's not to say that this is universally the case, but in the vast majority of the, of the I think it's something about 60% of respondents to the survey are saying that the values are being, their organisational values are being more lived now or better lived now than they were before the pandemic. So um, I, I think that's a really, really interesting statistic. Um, and one of the reasons... And, and what was it before the pandemic, if I might ask, would you guess? Was well, it 35, 40? Yeah, it's gone up something like that. So it's gone up a okay. statistically significant amount um, of organizations saying they are better living their values now than before the pandemic. We also that's great. questions about how supportive have the values been. Um and that's really, really interesting as well. And what we can see, and this is probably no surprise, but organisation whose values are clearly ex- articulated and expressed, not just implicit, that those organisations have found the value that their values more valuable, if you like, or more supportive during. So the more the clearer you are, and the better and more clearly you articulate the values, the more useful they are to your organization we also asked um in which areas values are most supportive of the organization and we and we offered a number of um potential answers to this as well as obviously open answers as well and we talked about decision making at a business team and individual level we also talked about keeping people connected we talked about things like onboarding and we talked about maintaining and sustaining the culture and 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 overwhelmingly the answer about where they were most supportive was in um, maintaining and sustaining the culture and again that's massively important for the employee experience we talk about in, um, culture being the soup within which employee experience swims. Actually, I, I, I borrowed that expression from somebody else, but I really, really like it. I think it's a, it's a great visual guide to how those two things of culture and employee experience sit together. Yeah, no. The the um, other place I wanted to go to is I assume there's some correlate to what in the states here is called the Great Resignation. 
going on across the pond. Um, and, and I've been interested I, to me, this is going back to the question of why now, uh, because it seems to me at least that the, the great resignation was someone called the, the great reshuffling recently because people are indeed landing in other jobs that they think are a better fit based on the lifestyle, the culture, the experiences they're having as an employee. Uh, but to me, that really comes down to a, a moral judgment. I always started with my interest in the role of emotions in business because it was, you know, what was motivating, what resonated for you, what got you engaged and going. But uh, just like your answer about what the employee experience is, if I go to the deepest level from the everyday and more smiles and good days to the most profound level of culture, to me, it really ends up resonating with, you know, what is my value system, my purpose for being here? And, and then you get, you know, a meaningful engagement, not just like, I'm going to work hard for you, <laughs> but I'm going to work hard because I care about the outcome for, for everyone involved. Um, you know, so do you, do you see the great resignation the same way? Is there a different term being used in the UK? I'm just curious about how, how that looks beyond the States. Yeah, it, absolutely. That same, that same expression. And yes, absolutely. It, it's a really significant thing here. Um, I'm hearing about it time and time again. And when we started Work. When I started working in employee experience some years ago, the thing that clients came to us presenting problems around were attraction and retention. So how can we get more people? How can we keep them with us longer? That then started to morph, particularly during the pandemic, it started to morph into how can we look after them? How can we learn more quickly? How can we be more flexible, more resilient? How can we innovate better? So those needs around employee experience, what was driving that focus started to morph. It's now almost coming full circle again, which has helped oh my goodness, how can we possibly sustain this? We don't have enough people to do the right work and we cannot find the right people or get them to join us. So the great resignation is, is, a, is a massively important thing here. It's also compound, compounded in the UK by Brexit as well. So um, uh, people returning to um, other European countries and leaving the UK as a place to work. So we've got a sort of a double whammy, if you like. So there's lots of things that are pushing employee experience up the agenda. Yeah, no, we actually have very similar. I just saw statistics the other day uh, since uh, 2016 and uh, Trump coming to office. And then even since Trump has left office, uh, immigration into the U.S. is, is created by four-fifths. Uh, so you have not additional workers coming in. You have what's also been called the great retirement, where you have the first wave of boomers who decided to get out maybe earlier than they expected. Uh, so all of these things are, are pinching together. But I really love the fact that you talked about getting this past this, what you call the flash offices, because to me, some of this whole started with uh, with COVID-19. We, of course, got the term the essential worker or employee, only they didn't feel like they were they, they were essential to show up as a pair of hands, but they weren't essential in terms of caring about them, uh, unfortunately, in their experience. And a lot of those were frontline workers. Uh, who didn't have the same privileges and opportunities as those who could start to work from home. So uh, I want to give you the opportunity to take that democratization and uh, be on the flash offices. If you want to say something more on that, it just seems to me so essential. It's it's easy for us who have nice educations and opportunities in life to think that that's, that's everything and uh, forget about some of the other workers involved. Yeah, I, I think for me the... The case for including everybody in this desire to create a better workplace is so fundamental. I almost forget the need to, to make that case. 
but that's sitting as a you know person of privilege in an office, a home office, not out on the front line doing hard work and feeling totally undervalued for it. I think there is a move. I've just come off a call with um, a, a logistics business, and they were talking about you know that a big proportion of their population are warehouse based. And a big proportion of the population are also office-based. But up until this point, they're working on employee experience. Up until this point, it's been the office-based teams thinking about the employee experience for everybody else. I think one of the things that we, there's two kind of underpinning um, principles of this or methodologies that sit behind this book. It's the cleverness baked in. So if you don't know what these things are, if you're reading the book, it really doesn't matter. We like to think it's the cleverness baked in, but it's design thinking and positive psychology. And both of those things put the individual or the employee at the heart of everything. And the reason for saying that now is that when we're thinking about, so hopefully I've made the case for why it's important for everybody to have a great day. <laughs> I, think, I think you have. But then it's what you do about it. So we need to move beyond this idea of um, one of people being able to make assumptions and design a great experience for another set of people because what one person's great experience looks like is going to be very different for another person's which is why design thinking is such a powerful tool because it takes a a person-centered or human-centered approach to design and it makes you move beyond this whole idea of uh, assumptions to actually using principles like curiosity and um, empathy to understand what the needs of other groups of people are and then design around that so I think it's one point accepting the fact that, yes, everybody deserves had a great employee experience, but it's another point to know where to start with that. And that's what we like to think that we've we've tackled in the book. Yeah, no, I, I like that a lot. I also am thinking of something I just read the other day, which said, well, one of the differences between America and England is that in America, when you say you're middle class, it's your social economic position. But in England, you know, being middle class is a matter of social standing and status and not necessarily quite as constrained by socioeconomic standing because you know england is indeed still a very class society mm-hmm. yeah yeah don't know what to add to so, that apart from cringe a little bit but yes <laughs> well i i noticed it when i went and studied at oxford because uh, someone said to me almost immediately said oh we we can know uh you know by your accent not only where you were born probably or grew up within 12 miles but we'd know whether you went to public or private school and, um, you know, sort of all these things that pigeonhole and define you rapidly. want to pivot a little bit here. Um, at one point in the book, you're, you're talking about, you know, experiences make us feel something. And I'm wondering in your research and, and analysis, what feelings you find are, are most common in the workplace? And, and maybe there's a, a nice shift going on in that. Oh, that's a, that's a good question. What feelings are most common in the workplace? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Such a good, it's such a good question. I mean, obviously, if, if you were to reduce it right down, well, I guess we're, what we're talking about is we want to create more positive feelings or more positive 
emotions in the workplace um, rather than the negative because what we know is that the positive feelings are broadening i.e they make us more open to new experiences to experimentation to to learning so the more that we can focus on creating those positive experiences that lead to positive emotions that a the better it is for our um, for the, all of us in you know in in work working with organisations, but actually it's also a lot better for the organisation itself. As soon as you start creating negative experiences or experiences that lead to negative emotions, you get a narrowing impact. So people, you know, you move into fight or flight mode, people become less collaborative, less open to new experience, they feel less secure. Um, so they don't, they don't, they don't experiment, they don't, they, they don't try things out, they, you know, they work very much to the letter of what they've been told to do rather than actually taking initiative or, or, or anything else that could help to, to create meaningful change or to start to move things on in the organisation. So I don't know if it's possible to say which emotions are most prevalent. Um, I know that we want to create those positive ones. The other thing that we can talk, talk about a little bit, and this is so my co-author Emma Bridger has done a phenomenal piece of research over 10 years where they have collected, again, this is leading into positive psychology. So she's taken a question, which is describe your best experience at work. And they've, they've run this, this process with literally thousands of people in organizations, small and large, all the way around the world. And they've condensed this insight to understand what creates a great experience at work. And these are called the, the um, sort of universal themes. Obviously, there are individual influencing factors on this as well. But this, she's distilled this down to something called the Magica model. So this is what creates a great experience at work um, is having meaning, autonomy, growth, um, impact, knowing that what you're doing is is important. So challenge, being stretched, work doesn't need to be easy. Um, appreciation, connection, and autonomy. I think I've said autonomy. I've probably said one of those more, more than once, but that's the Magica model. And I think those are, I don't know if you describe those as emotions, but those are the elements of what create time and time again, create a great experience at work. And I think what's nice there, it's not, obviously it doesn't say being paid well, um, but it doesn't need to be easy. If you think about, if you asked, um, Emma talks about running the marathon and that is a, a deeply painful and <laughs> activity, believe me. But it's also, for me, it's one of the most memorable and best things that I've ever done um, because it taps into all of those. It was about challenge. It was about impact, raising money. It was meaning for me and, you know, and it just really pushed me. And so I think what creates a great experience at work is sometimes quite surprising to people. Yeah, no, I think it is uh, qualities or goals that you've outlined. I mean, I, I guess I would add a couple of things there. I think every emotion is has potentially both an upside and a downside to it. Uh, happiness, I think you're right, is, is very expansive. At the same time, happiness, studies suggest, can make you a bit uh, complacent and sloppy with the details. Uh, anger on its surface is clearly a, a negative emotion if it causes you to hit out. Uh, but it can also be indignation about something you think is not acceptable and, and could and should be changed. Um, you know, I would say, yes, a lot of emotions, particularly anger and fear, can tend to narrow our focus. On the other hand, I guess conventionally I'd say sadness would be thought of as a negative emotion. But I often think of sadness as a chance for reflection. You've, you've been disappointed. Why? It can it can lead you to greater empathy, in fact. Um, so, you know, all those are possible. I, I can say having been an employee myself, 
uh, <laughs> disappointment, I sadness, uh, some anger, some happiness. Uh, unfortunately, if I think I'm being lied to, contempt. Uh, all of those can be possibilities. My next question was, and I think you made a, a point of this at one juncture in the book, it seems to me there's surprisingly little focus on improving the skill sets of line managers. And I'm thinking of a statistic where someone who's an EQ, emotional intelligence expert, said probably about 10, 12, 15% of all managers really have EQ skills, which is just appallingly low. Why is it that we have so little emphasis? I think back to my time in in uh, being an employee None of my managers are particularly getting training on being better managers that I could tell. Mm. Absolutely. And um, I'd like to say that's changing. I'm not 100% sure it is. Well, it's definitely not changing 100% of cases. I think this, this in hierarchical organizations in particular where you do a job well for a number of years, so you get promoted and promoted means you get promoted to manager and people forget that this term manager actually means leading, supporting, growing, coaching people. It's just seen as managing people as sort of, um, I don't know, resources in, in a process rather than as people. So there's, you know, this word managing and this idea is, tends to, to focus on the status quo rather than actually supporting, coaching and enabling. So I think the definition of line management, of people management just needs to be really front and center of mind when thinking about this because otherwise we're always going to get stuck but yes 100% agree that um, people managers aren't necessarily the best people to be looking after teams of people well I've seen a statistic I think something like 30 at least in the states here maybe 35% of all um, you know discretionary spending by corporations is on executive education which is which is fine and good but I, I'm left thinking maybe some portion of that should be uh parceled out to the the line managers a bit more just to um, uh, strengthen the organization yeah for, for the reasons that we know um and also it's really easy to forget that managers are our employees as well and if you're putting them into to a to a role that's ill defined and which they're not set up for success that's deeply unfair so um i I just think it needs a proper rethink it just needs to be as you say the education piece the role definition needs to be really looked at in a lot of organizations and then the skills that these people need need to be really focused on to enable them to do a great job I, I could go a million places with this conversation and easily an hour, but we're going to run out of time here pretty shortly. I have at least one more question for you. Uh, you make a, a good and important case for the importance of empathy. What are some of the cognitive biases you've seen that unfortunately in the workplace tend to limit empathy? Mm. That's a really good question. I think, um, I think there's, for me, it's it's the assumption piece. It's that assuming that the people in HR who often get um, the mandate to, to do this work, it's assuming and making an assumption about ourselves that we know what's good for other people. So um, there's that sort of confirmation bias, I guess, in there that we know what's best. And actually, even when we collect the data, um, we use that uh, people data to, to reinforce the decisions that we've read, already made. So I think that idea that um, also this idea that, you know, if I'm an HR, I should have all the answers. And if I don't, I need to pretend that I do. So it's <laughs> yeah. to admit that 
And it's a huge mindset shift. It's hugely challenging to really lean into this idea of curiosity, which is what questions do I need to answer in the first place? And then how do I exercise my empathy muscle to go and use them? And that is, as I say, it's a big mindset shift and fundamental to to taking a human-centered approach. Um, There are probably many more biases at play in there that I haven't thought of, but those would be the ones that sort of jump to mind. No, no, I think that's that's fair. I mean, I, in the book, you had mentioned at one point, uh, you and Emma, about uh, HR seems to sometimes prefer surveys over real dialogue because real dialogue means you're going to have to be vulnerable and you're going to hear some answers you didn't expect or maybe uh, are going to have to cause you to rethink your assumptions. And uh, human beings don't tend to like to go back over ground. They thought it was, was settled. Um, requires more effort, <laughs> more humility sometimes. Um, but uh, no, that, that makes sense to me. So I need to draw to a close, regrettably, but it's been a, a wonderful conversation. I really endorse where you are headed with this book, um, and I wish it all the best. Uh, this has been episode 105, Why Employee Experience and Why Now? My guest has been Belinda Ganaway. She is the co-author of The Employee Experience by Design, How to Create an Effective EX for Competitive Advantage. If you enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. You can find other episodes by going to my company's website at the obligatory three W's, sensorylogic.com, or to the New Books Network and type in Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, and you'll see the other guests I've had on over the past two years. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an epigram. In this case, I took one from F. Scott Fitzgerald, who said, to be kind is more important than being right. Until next time, take care and be well. Mm